number 12 of Philippians 1. We'll read it in a moment. I want to just remind you that uh, Paul's writing this from prison. He's locked up in a prison cell. From every outward appearance, he's not free. He can't choose his meals. He can't choose his uh, time frame. He can't uh, do what God has called him to do. So from the outward appearance, he looks very confined and imprisoned. Yet as we read the chapter and continue to read through the book, we sense this feeling of joy. Man, how could this guy be so joyous? He was truly free. And friends, the Bible says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And that freedom is an interior freedom that you and I can have in knowing Christ as our Savior. It doesn't matter what we're experiencing outwardly. Paul did not feel sorry for himself. Paul was not uh, in a pity party. He didn't view himself as a victim. Oh, I'm a victim of the religious leaders of the day who don't want to hear about the Messiah. Or I'm a, a victim of the Roman Empire, that oppressive government that has me in chains. He did not allow himself to go down that road. He wasn't complaining that his rights had been violated. It, wa it wasn't a, 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 a complaint found about... Uh, how he couldn't do those things that he wanted to do because he knew that he was free. Last week, I referred to a book by a French monk, a charismatic, uh, uh, actually a tongue-talking Catholic priest um, who is uh, out of the diocese in, in, in France. His name is Jacques Philippe. He's not... Uh, he has passed away, but uh, he lived in the, in, the or in the 20th century. He wrote a book called Interior Freedom, and I want to read a portion of that book to you, just a paragraph. But listen, because I think it, it helps us understand uh, the perspective of Paul and what should be our perspective, okay? We possess within ourselves a space of freedom that nobody can take away because God is its source, and God is its guarantee. We gain possession of our interior freedom in exact proportion to our growth in faith, hope, and love. If you and I need more freedom, interior freedom, we need to grow spiritually. We need to mature in our faith of being able to trust God, in our hope that God is going to make all things better, and in the love that we have for God, no matter what our circumstance is, and the love that we have for others. How does that relate to us? Because none of us are in prison. We're all here today worshiping. But we have prisons of our own. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a, a physical uh, disease. Maybe it's a financial need. Maybe it's something that you need that you just haven't had that breakthrough yet. Those can be prisons outwardly, but they don't have to keep us confined inwardly. So last week we talked about how Paul, the very first thing he does, he writes, thank you for your support. This is to a church that he had not been to in 12 years. Remember the church in Philippi? He had planted 12 years earlier, and he talked to them. He encouraged them. He was affectionate with them. We're free to encourage, 
But today we're going to look at probably what's going to be the hardest concept of this entire series. And it's that we're free to suffer. Wasn't expecting a lot of amens. And I didn't get a lot of amens. Because we don't like to suffer. We don't like to suffer. But whether we like it or not, suffering is part of our life. Because we live in a sinful world. And even if we choose to follow Christ, which might even add another layer of suffering, because people might make fun of us, they might oppress us, they might persecute us. But no matter what suffering you might be going through today, the way that you respond to the suffering is what matters. That's what Jesus is looking at, your heart, your inward freedom. How do you respond to suffering? I'd say it's one of the most important things about a person. When they're going through a tough time, how do they respond? Do they become bitter? Do they become better? Uh, Do we find when they're poked with holes that grace flows from them or venom flows from them? Eugene Peterson, who uh, was a professor at Regent University up in Vancouver, B.C. for many years and did the paraphrase called The Message. He was a pastor of a Presbyterian church for many years back on the East Coast. And he wrote that message as a paraphrase to help his congregation understand the word of God in American idioms. (laughs) The message does not work in France or Italy, or the Philippines. It is strictly, really, kind of a lens of American sayings and idioms. And that's the way he created it. It was never supposed to be a translation or a a literal. It was always a paraphrase. But this is what Eugene Peterson said, and I really love this quote. There is a way to accept, embrace, and deal with suffering that results in a better life not a worse one, and more of the experience of God, not less. How do we deal with suffering? Today's passage uh, contains a a Greek word, agon, A-G-O-N, if you're taking notes. And as you came in this morning, hopefully you received one of our our programs, and on the back, there's a place to take notes, agon, A-G-O-N. It's a Greek word that originally meant like a place where athletic contests were held. It really means contest or struggle or even conflict. Those are some synonyms to agon. Agon in this day and age, when Paul used it, um, was used for a specific place. Like if I say the Apple Bowl, or if I say T-Mobile Park, you realize that is a specific place where there's competition taking place. And so Agon became known as the arena where people would come and compete against each other. Now, we're only two weeks away from the Olympics, and we'll be able to watch the Summer Olympics on television. We'll see uh, some contests, some struggles, 
some, some sweat, some competition. It's that same agon. Over time, the Greek-speaking world, that word started to be used for any struggle. If you're going through a tough time, it was an agon, a struggle. Now, guess what English word we get from that word, agon? Just add a, a Y to it. Agony. Have you ever agonized over something? I have at 2.30 in the morning. And you probably have too. Agony. Agon. Whatever troubles you today, whatever you're suffering with, this section of Philippians 1 is what that's all about. And Paul's going to give us uh, three lessons here. The purpose of suffering in our life, the perpetrators of suffering, and then the pinnacle of suffering. So let's look at our text. If you have your Bible or you can read it on the screen, or if you're at home, we'll, uh, we'll give you access to it as well. Philippians 1, and last week we uh, did verse 1 through 11. So today we'll pick up at verse number 12. Would you stand this morning as we read God's word? Philippians 1, 12 to 30. I'm reading today from the New International Version. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that as what happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now just ponder that for a moment. He's in prison. He can't preach. He can't pass out tracts, he can't hold tent meetings, he can't do street ministry, he can't do a home Bible study, but he says what has happened has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy, rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing, here it is, is in every way, whether from false motives or from true, Christ is preached. Let's pause for just a moment and remind ourselves that's why it's important for us not to be critical of other ministries. It's real easy to look at the church across town and say, oh, they shouldn't be doing that, or their motive's wrong. Or, no, no. If they're preaching Christ, Paul says, let it be. And because of that, he actually rejoiced. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I'll continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on the account of me. Lord, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts and lives in the next half hour to enlighten us from your holy word. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Three things here. The purpose of suffering, the perpetrators of suffering, and the pinnacle of suffering. How do we look differently at the purpose for our suffering? How do we look at those who are the perpetrators of our suffering? Those who are causing us to suffer, whether it's your next-door neighbor or your employer or the government. And then the pinnacle, what's the very worst kind of suffering? Those are the three areas I want to look at this morning. So let's look first at verse 12 and see the purpose of our suffering. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Again, rather than complaining about being in prison, which is what I probably would do, Paul could have easily done that. But he's actually noticed, hey, man, God has put me here, and in this situation, something good is happening, and the gospel is actually being advanced. It's moving forward, which is ironic, because why did they put him in prison? Because they wanted to stop the gospel from being advanced. So the very reason that they put him in prison is actually taking place. That's the way the Holy Spirit works in our life. You can't figure it out. That's why you need not to lean on your own understanding, but to trust the Lord that God is working for your good and for his purpose in your life, no matter what you're facing. Man, the Jews, the religious leaders, they were threatened by this new Christian movement that was called the way. (laughs) Paul said, hey, I don't need to do anything. Because Jesus said before he left, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I remind myself of that often. Sometimes I think, oh man, we've got to do this. Oh, we've got to do this. No, we just have to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, be obedient to what he's asking us to do, and God will do the rest. He will build the church. Paul said, man, some of you are going to plant some seeds, some of you are going to water doesn't matter what your part is in the, pro- in the process. It's God that ultimately brings forth the harvest. Man, I remember a few years ago, people say, well, you've got to do something, Pastor, to get more people into the church. You've got to do something to bring more young people into the church. And I felt this burden. Man, I've got to, I've got to perform. I've got to do all this. And then I remembered, no, I don't. That's up to God. I have to be obedient to offer what God's telling us to offer, whether it's a VBS or a a new men's Bible study that we're going to be launching in the fall or whatever it might be. 
We've got to be obedient, but we do not have to bring forth the results. And that's true in your life, not just in the life of a church, not just in the life of the universal church. It's in our life. Let's bring this down, man. Do I need to make these things happen? I can trust God. I can trust God. Paul mentions a couple ways here that the gospel was advancing. Notice in verse 13, he first of all says, it was through the whole palace guard, and then everyone else knew that he, why he was in chain. Think about that for a moment. Paul was in, in Rome, uh, guarded by the palace guard. So he had personal guards. He was guarded by the emperor's elite troops. What does that mean? Well, according to some of the research I did, it meant that every four hours, the Roman guards would change their shift, and every four hours, a new Roman guard would come and chain himself to Paul. Let me ask you, do you think Paul ever talked to the guy he was chained to? Talk about a captive audience. Man, Paul wanted to share the gospel. And whoever he was chained to, that was his audience. And guess what? Every four hours, he got someone new to share the gospel with. Can you imagine those Roman guards looking at their schedule? Oh, man, two o'clock, I've got to go guard that Paul. He's just going to preach to me. I know he will. And he did. Literally, every four hours, he gets this new Roman soldier, literally chained to him. Paul shared his story of conversion. I'm sure Paul said, you know, there was a day that I used to persecute and even kill these people called Christians. But let me tell you what happened to me one day on the road to Damascus. He would share his testimony. I believe many of those Roman soldiers came to faith because of Paul's testimony. I think back at some of the dear saints of Wenatchee First Assembly who have found themselves in the hospital, maybe even for extended periods of time. Did they moan and groan and complain? Many of them decided, God's put me here so I can minister to those nurses. I can minister to those doctors. I can share my faith with that surgeon. Many, many of the saints that I'm aware of use their prison in order to advance the gospel. That's the heart. That's the attitude I want. The second thing we see here in verse 14, he says, because of my chains, not only was it the palace guard, but most of the brothers and sisters, talking about other believers, have become more confident and they are more bold to proclaim the gospel without fear. He motivated others. Now remember, Paul was writing this in about the year 62 AD. Rome burned in 64 AD. So we're just talking about two years before Rome burned. Two days later, or two years later, <laughs> Emperor... Nero is going to come in and he's going to blame the Christians and 
Rome's going to be burned down to the ground. And here's the point. When Paul was writing this letter, it was really, really dangerous to be identified as a Christian in Rome. A lot of Christians were in hiding. Politically, this, there was a lot of turmoil here. And again, Nero blamed the Christians when Rome burned just two years later. So you'd think that when the Christians in Rome found out that Paul had been imprisoned, that they would lay kind of low, that they would maybe be a little quiet. But they didn't. It says they boldly proclaimed, because you know why? Courage breeds courage. They saw the courage of Paul. Courage breeds courage. And that's why in our life, when we're suffering, we need to respond like Paul. And we need to keep our interior freedom to be joyful, to say how great is our God, to be the kind of person that is going to always be optimistic, that has love and faith and hope. Because that kind of courage and that kind of boldness is actually contagious. And it advances the gospel, and we see it right here. God was using a bad thing. It wasn't good Paul was in prison. He was using a bad thing. He was using Paul's suffering to produce a good thing, which was to advance the gospel. That's the kind of thing God does all the time. He'll do it in your life. He'll do it in my life. If we'll just let him, if we'll realize that our outward prison does not have to take away our freedom, our freedom to encourage, our freedom to suffering. Philip Yancey has written many books over the last couple decades, um, and really a pretty good, pretty good writer. Uh, but when he was in high school, he was a really good chess player, and not everyone knows that about him. Uh, but as he went into college and then the Lord called him to ministry, he kind of put that game aside. In a magazine article I read about Philip Yancey, uh, about 20 years into his ministry, he was living in Chicago, Illinois, and he met a guy who also was interested in chess, and it kind of rekindled Philip Yancey's uh, love for chess. And uh, this guy was a real expert, and he didn't know really what he had gotten himself into, but he decided to enter a tournament with this chess expert after having not played chess for 20 years. Here's what he writes. Quote, we played a few matches and I learned that it's what it's like to play against a master. Any classic offense I tried, he countered with a classic defense. If I turned to more risky, unorthodox methods... He incorporated my bold forays into his winning strategies. Although I had complete freedom to make any move I wished, I soon reached the conclusion that none of my strategies mastered or mattered very much because his superior skill guaranteed that my purposes inevitably ended up serving his purpose. Think about that in the spirit. Perhaps God engages our universe. God engages his own creation. God engages our life in much the same way. 
We're, we're people of, of free choice. We know that. He grants us that freedom to rebel against his original design. But even as we do so, we end up ironically being led by the Holy Spirit, being wooed back into fellowship with our Creator to eventually, for our own good, our own purposes. And I think if we can accept that, friends, it's a huge step of faith for all of us that know Christ. You say, we might not understand this. We might not have a lot of control. But friends, if you understand that the steps of righteous people, and if you've accepted Christ, he is your righteousness. You are righteous. Doesn't mean you're sinless. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean that you can't improve on your performance. But it means spiritually, you are righteous. And your steps are ordered of God. Which means even if you find yourself in a prison of depression, a prison of debt, a prison of disease, a prison of oppression, you can still choose to trust God. It transforms how we can view the good things in the life and the bad things in our life. I can always see God in the good. Man, you're out on the lake and you see your family and you see God's provision and you think about all your blessings. It's wonderful. You can see God moving in your life. It's not so easy when you're lying in ICU fighting for your life. Good things, you know, health and talent and money. You know, we often present to God for his purposes. But I want you to know all those bad things, your suffering, your disability, your poverty, your family dysfunction, all those things can be redeemed by God. They can be the very instruments that drive you closer to God and advances the gospel. Now, I just love that chess analogy because <laughs> it reminds me that God has a purpose for everything, even things that seem random, even painful things. It helps me remember, it's okay. God is in control. The purpose of suffering, in verse 16, Paul says, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Think about that for a minute. What, what, what stands out? I am put here. Hmm. I am put here. Maybe God's put you exactly, or maybe God has allowed you to be exactly where you are at this moment. Can you say in the midst of your suffering, I am put here? Paul recognized that being in prison wasn't random. I know <laughs> it's a tough thing. We understand God is not responsible for evil. Don't get me wrong. God's not responsible for the cruelty of the people that imprisoned Paul. God is not the author of evil, but friends, he is big enough and brilliant enough to use that for his purpose if we can trust him. Some of you might feel chained to an awful job 
or you're chained to homeschooling your kids because of the recent pandemic. You know, you, you might feel chained to that hospital room. You might be chained to a rehab bed. And you say, yes, but God's allowed me to be here. Most of us say, God, get me out of here. I mean, that's our human nature. But if we can be like Paul and say, wow, God's put me here, so as long as God allows me to be here, let me see the reason. Uh, Let me encourage those around me. Let me witness to my doctor or my nurse or my prison guard. Friends, if God is in control... There's always got to be a purpose for suffering. Now, God shows us how to think differently, not just about the purpose, but also the perpetrators of our suffering. Because that's often the hardest, isn't it? The hardest thing about suffering is when your suffering comes from a loved one, a friend, the perpetrators your neighbor that you have to live by. I mean, getting cancer is a terrible thing. But there's a whole different level when you're cheated on by your spouse. It's a whole different level of pain. Because cancer seems to be somewhat random. Probably there's not a family here today or a family watching online that hasn't been affected by cancer. But it's something that we really can't protect ourselves against. But man, if your spouse betrays you. Now remember again that word agon, A-G-O-A, agon. Because we have another English word that comes from that Greek word. The first I talked about was agony. There's another word that we have in our English language called antagonist. Same root word agon antagonist. Now, what is an antagonist? It's somebody that causes our suffering. It's the perpetrator. Someone who causes our agony is the antagonist. And we have them. And if you're not careful, your life can be dominated by them. That's why twice in this passage, Paul talks about how he views those who are causing him agony, his antagonist. Look at verse 15. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. They were preaching Christ for the wrong reason. They're probably criticizing Paul. I think we can can read between the lines. They're probably very critical of Paul. Maybe making fun of him, saying, well, he's the one in jail. He must have done something wrong. Likely, those antagonists are using their influence to turn other people against Paul. And we all know what that's like. And how do we naturally respond to that kind of stuff? We get mad. We get angry at those who are causing us pain and turning others against us. We stew on it. We think of, well, here's a way I can set the record straight. But friends, we don't realize what that kind of response is doing to that interior freedom. The true freedom that Paul's talking about here. I love this quote by German theologian Frederick Bonhoeffer. 
On the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is what you are wolfing down is yourself. And the skeleton at the feast is you. Great theological thought. If you and I can be like Paul and hold our anger, hold our sense of being a victim, we might think that we're sometimes punishing the the person who offended us, but you're actually destroying yourself if you hold on to that anger. So how how did Paul respond to it? (laughs) He says, what is the matter? That's up to God, not up to me. I can't change their hearts. Isn't that verse 18 basically says? He says, what is the matter? The most important thing in every way, whether from false motives or from true, Christ is being preached. Now, this is in a spiritual context. But again, I know we often judge other ministries, other churches, say, oh, well, they're greedy. They, they have a false motive. They on and on. We all do that. Now, we need to judge. Don't get me wrong. The scripture says that we are to judge the spirits. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about that response where we think that we need to change something instead of just leaving it in God's hands. And Paul here refuses to get pulled into resentment, pulled into this frame of revenge. He doesn't let his ego get all wounded either. He rises above it with the help of the Holy Spirit. And you and I can have the freedom to suffer and to look at our perpetrators, turn them over to God, not allow our identity in Christ to be affected by what they're doing, what they're saying. Not to stoop down to that level, to brush it off. Man, uh, he picks up that theme again in verse 28. Notice that. He says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. In other words, whatever the perpetrator is, whoever it is, whatever is causing suffering in your life, and it might be, uh, you know, something like finances or or cancer, uh, but it could be a person, an ex-spouse, or a child, or an employer, or a brother or sister. Don't fear them. Paul says, keep loving them. Keep speaking the truth. And when you do that, it'll be a sign of that kind of love, that kind of courage that only can come from God. Only can come through the power of the Holy Spirit. Which is why I've been preaching on the importance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's why one of our values is spirit empowerment. We need the spirit in order to be like Paul in times of suffering. Okay, last thing, and that's the pinnacle. Talked about the purpose, the perpetrators, the pinnacle. What is the pinnacle of suffering? 
It's death. It's separation from all that we know. This earth, that's all we know is this earth. Our family, our friends, the pinnacle of suffering, the ultimate suffering for every individual is death. All the struggles we face throughout life are almost a a prelude to that final struggle. Paul sat in this prison and he realized, man, my death could be very near. So he lets us in on his inner thoughts. It's almost like his personal journal. And in verse 23, he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far, far better. And there's a lot of theology packed in there, isn't there? Now, that doesn't mean that Paul believed in like a a soul sleep. He doesn't believe in purgatory. When Paul looked ahead to that inevitable moment of his earthly death, he knew that as soon as he departed this world, he would be with Christ. That brings us great hope. He says that in 2 Corinthians, he says, man, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. But here's the main point. That's a good thought, but in Paul's mind, he's saying, when you compare life here on earth with life with Jesus in eternity, wow, there is just no contest. No agone there. <laughs> That's why he says in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living in this world, I get to walk with Christ and serve Christ. But dying would be even better because I get to be with him. That's the way we all should look at death. The world doesn't look at death like that because it brings unknown. It brings fear. But friends, when you know Christ as your Savior and know that Christ has defeated death, (laughs) Oh, we grieve for those who have died, but we grieve with hope because Christ gives us hope. But without the hope of Christ, the very idea of death would be the worst suffering ever. But Paul says, man, for me to die is gain. That's a great thought. And in the book of Hebrews, it says Jesus comes to people who all their lives have been captive to this fear of death. And Paul preaches the gospel that sets him free from that fear. And even here, sitting in a physical prison as he wrote this, he's completely free from the fear of death. Because he knows ultimately that's the best freedom there is. To be out of an earthly body, to be away from all the sinful influences and the sinful consequences of this planet. Man, I hope all of us can get to that point of saying, I don't fear death. In fact, I'm looking forward to it. It creates this, and I'm not talking about a death wish. Don't misunderstand me. But that kind of, it creates this incredible kind of freedom inside of us. I sat with some great people the last six months from our congregation who have passed, and I've seen that kind of faith. That kind of faith, that kind of freedom. Man, as long as we live in this world, friends, there's going to be suffering. Here's what I want you to hear today. 
If you choose to follow Christ, you can have an interior freedom that will turn that suffering into something that contains purpose, contains hope. We live in a broken world, but you don't have to be trapped by your suffering. Oh, it might affect you outwardly in some terrible ways, but inwardly, You can be free as the Apostle Paul. That is true freedom, and it's available to all of us through our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that helps us while we're navigating through our 60, 70, 80 years of life here on earth. And I thank you, Lord, for the example of the Apostle Paul who suffered much, yet remained free inside. And I pray, O God, that your Holy Spirit will just come and minister today to everyone in this room and everyone who's watching online, that, Lord, that they will place their faith in you. If you're here today, friends, and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, that is the first step to true freedom. He'll forgive you of your sin. He'll take away that that guilt of your selfish lifestyle. He'll give you hope. He'll give you purpose. He'll give you his Holy Spirit. And if you've never asked Christ into your heart, today's the day to do that. And I just want to encourage you right now to take a step of faith and just raise your hand right now and say, Pastor, I want to accept Christ as my Savior. I want to be free in the days ahead. No matter what is happening outwardly, I want to have the freedom that Christ offers. Is there anyone here today that would take that step, raise their hand and say, I would like to be free by accepting Christ as my Savior? If not, I just need to accept that you have accepted Christ already. And I want to pray for you. I look around this auditorium and I'm, I know most of you. And I know some of the struggles that you've been through. And my heart's heavy and hurts for you. Yet I want to encourage you as your pastor today. <laughs> that that's suffering can actually advance the gospel of Christ and the purpose of God in your life. Don't try to isolate yourself, but instead embrace the presence of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful congregation that I'm honored to pastor. Lord, there's some that have been through some difficult times of late, And there's some that are still going through difficult times. Spouses that are incarcerated. Spouses that are facing life-threatening diseases. Relationships that have been fractured by selfishness and in need of reconciliation. God, some are suffering because they've stood up for what's right in the world, in the marketplace has harassed them and tried to oppress them. 
But God, they're standing firm in their convictions, and I thank you for that. So Lord, whatever each of us are going through, I just pray right now that the power of the Holy Spirit will rise up big within us. And Lord, will give us a bigger picture, not a picture of our chains, not a picture of our prison cell, but a picture of God fulfilling his plan and purpose in our life, knowing that nothing will stop what God is doing in us. For you say you would start and you would complete. You're the author and you're the finisher of our faith. You will never abandon us. So Lord, may we never judge what you're doing in our life based upon our outward appearances, our outward circumstances. But Lord, may we always choose to rejoice as the Apostle Paul did. May we always choose to trust you. May we always embrace, oh God, whether it's the good or the bad, knowing that you can cause all things to work together for our good and conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, your son. That's our prayer, Lord. Give us strength. Give us courage, knowing the courage will breed more courage. Help us, Lord, to be like our friends who have shown that kind of courage in days gone by. Lord, help us to be faithful to you and to the gospel of Jesus until you take us home. We love you, Lord. We bless your name. Let's stand and sing it together with the worship team.